All right, well, we're going to take our Bibles together invite you to turn to Genesis as we continue through our journey and our journey through this wonderful book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 is where we'll pick it up this morning till uh, 13, chapter 13, verse 1. That's the section that we're looking at. Uh, if you're using the church Bible, you're going to find that on page 9. Page 9. All right, let's give our full attention to God's Word as it is read. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. This is God's word. Uh, I invite you to pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help in this time. Father, your word that lies open for us is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And because it has been breathed out by you, it pierces us. It comes to the very core of our being, dividing soul and spirit both joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Because that's true, Father, we must give our full attention to it. And we pray that you would give each of us minds and hearts that are attentive and ready to hear from you. And we all know that a mere man cannot accomplish the things of God, and so as just the messenger here, uh, I pray that I will be clear, that I will not be distracting, but more than anything, that your spirit would take the living and active word and plant it in all of our hearts, so that as a result, your word would accomplish the intended action in our lives, that we would be made more like your son. So we pray that you would accomplish that even now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whether we're talking about uh, comprehensive exams or entrance exams or qualification exams, licensing exams, medical boards, bar exams, I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who really enjoys the experience of a test. Says, oh, I just can't wait to take that test. And thinking beyond those formally, formally administered tests, there are tests in life, of course, aren't there? 
and just losing my power in our house early Saturday morning, that tested me. During and after the storm, I found myself fretting about the damage to my house, whether we'd lose our food in the fridge and freezer, whether or not we'd be able to meet today. I laid awake thinking about these things. And of course, on a global scale, these are minor inconveniences. But I could confidently say, I'd really rather not go through it. And I think most of us would probably agree. Well, for the Israelites who are about to cross the Jordan, so as we look at this Bible text and the, the collection of books called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, these fall to the ears of the Israelites about to cross the Jordan to possess the very land of Canaan. And the most significant historical event for these Israelites, the one that formed them as a people set apart to the Lord, the event that made them distinct from other nations, that was the Exodus. The Exodus was the story that they heard from their parents. The Exodus was the story that some, in fact, had remembered as they were young. They remembered how miraculous it was, but how difficult it was leading up to their deliverance and bondage uh, from bondage in Egypt. But their history, of course, went back further. The history of these Israelites, in fact, went back to Abraham. Abraham, Abram, as he's called in their text. And as they're about to find their own home in the land of Canaan, that very land that was promised to Abram, they would discover that the path that they have taken, the path that included testing, it's remarkably similar to the one taken by the patriarch himself. And the lesson for them, the Israelites, and the lesson for us is that God is faithful to fulfill his promise. It's a true statement. There will be difficulty, and that may cause doubt, but God comes through and brings deliverance for his own because he is faithful. And if you didn't pick up on those three D words, a rare alliteration, I want to invite you to follow me through this text as we look at the difficulty the doubt, and the deliverance. First of all, the difficulty. As I've gotten older, uh, I've become more realistic, I guess, in my expectations, more measured in what, I, what my hopes will be. And I think that's true for most people. As we age, we, we get a more realistic view of life. Just thinking back, graduating from high school, I thought that university would be amazing. But it was harder, <laughs> a lot harder. Uh, even as I imagined marriage, and I have a great marriage, but as I imagined it going into it, I thought, well, this is just like the, a steady stream of ease and delight and joy. Uh, we've been married almost 36 years, but, but truthfully, not every day has been better than the one before. Uh, there have been challenges with children, money difficulties, hard decisions, and certainly uh, conflict caused mostly by my own stubbornness and insensitivity to my wife. It's been a good marriage, but it hasn't been easy. Uh, I once saw a bumper sticker, perhaps you've seen this, that said this, life is hard, then you die. <laughs> and, and that may be a little bit cynical, right? It's a little cynical, but the truth is, life is hard. And with any good thing, there is going to be difficulty. Now, Abram, the one that's our focus of the text here, 
Abram had this glorious calling from the Lord. God spoke to him and told him. This is back in uh, the beginning of the chapter. We didn't read that part, but I'll remind you what it says. The Lord said to him, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he has made his way to Canaan. That's where he is. And it should be easy street, right? Well, no, we can see that's not true. It's not easy street. It's really the human experience that is universal human experience. Ever since the ground was cursed because of Adam's sin, there is difficulty. We see it here. Verse 10, we look at this. We find out about Abram's difficulty. The text tells us, now there was a famine in the land. The famine was severe. Now, I've never experienced famine. But I don't know what it's, and I don't know what it's like, but I can certainly imagine you can't find food. You can't grow anything. It's hard. Your very survival depends on you having that sustenance, but there's a famine, and it was severe. Well, what did Abram do? Verse 10, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now, whereas Canaan, the land of Canaan, depended on regular rainfall, the fertile uh, ground around the Nile River Valley. That was excellent for agriculture, so it was logical. And it looks good for a time. But not long after, there in Egypt, Sarai is taken against her will, against the will of Abram into the household of Pharaoh to be one of his wives enslaved. So escaping one difficulty led to another. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because I, I saw something in the study of this and it had been pointed out to, by a number of commentators, but, but this, this difficulty that, that Abram experiences, it really foreshadows how his grandson, Jacob, and his sons, the 12 tribes, how they eventually sojourn in Egypt. Why? To escape famine in Canaan. And for them, after a period of years, it leads to a greater difficulty of those multiplied Israelite tribes then being enslaved by Pharaoh. And so we ask the question, did, did this mean that God failed to keep his promise? But no. The fulfillment of God's promises, that's often preceded by great difficulty, testing. So we're told in the text, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. To sojourn, sojourn. That word, it's a, the Hebrew word, gor. It means to dwell temporarily, to be a stranger, really to seek the hospitality of another. Uh, when I was in seminary, Kathy and I made the decision that we needed to uh, reduce our expenses. Uh, we had, our two older children were already born, and there was one more on the way. And so in order to reduce our expenses, we lived for a while with my mother. We depended on her hospitality. Now, my mom was very gracious, but it was not our home, and it felt that way. We were sojourning in my mother's house. So to, to sojourn is to live in a place that is not your home. In a sense, as the people of God, we are sojourners, are we not? As those who have been set apart by God, we live in a world that is not our ultimate home. 
John chapter 14, Jesus promised his disciples, and by extension, he promises this to us. He said he would go and prepare a place in his father's house. Well, that place is not this world the way it is. In his first letter, the apostle Peter described the experience of all of us who've been called to Christ in faith. We were once part of the world, but now we're not. Here's what Peter says in his letter. Once you were a people, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So describing the, the, the state of affairs for all who are in Christ. You didn't know mercy, now you know it. You weren't the people of God, but now you are. And then he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You see, the passions of the flesh, pursuing those is the way of the world around us. Do whatever makes you feel good. Peter says, no, you're not of them. You've been called out. You're a people unto God. You have to live among these people. Don't give in to the passions of the flesh. In fact, abstain against them because those things war against your soul. So as sojourners in this world, we have to get it that this isn't our ultimate home. And knowing that, and given that we're going to have to resist following the way of the world, that means we're going to find ourselves in conflict, which means we will experience difficulties like Abram did. The ultimate goal, of course, is fulfilled in the promise of God to usher us ultimately into his eternal kingdom, that kingdom where Christ is exalted, where every knee will bow, where every tongue will confess that, that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2. That's, that's the ultimate destination. But until then, as Abram was sojourning in Egypt and didn't yet possess the land of Canaan, we, like Abram, sojourn in this world. And just as Jesus said, we can indeed live at peace with God. And we can experience that in our hearts even while there is turmoil around us and resistance and conflict. Jesus said to his disciples, and we can take this to heart. He was describing the situation. He said, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I want you to have peace, he said. You can have that in me. And then he said this, In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, that tribulation for you may be pain. It may be disease. It might be loneliness. Sorrows of many kinds. And you know what those are. And it may be the feeling of uncertainty of your job or the lack of it or maybe just the rise of evil around us. Know this. That turmoil is not wasted. This suffering is not wasted. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about suffering, about difficulty. He says this in Romans 5. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, and this is where it gets jarring in a sense, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Huh. Knowing that, our, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So as believers in Jesus, we should have no illusions that, that things would be easy. We should not have that illusion as we sojourn in this world. Acts 14, 22. It tells us there that the Apostle Paul, in continuing his gospel work in, in Lystra, Iconium, and, and Antioch, he, this is what it says in the text. They're strengthening the souls of the disciples. Well, that's just building them up, teaching them, of course, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's how it goes. Now, the kingdom of God is an irrevocable promise for all who have trusted in Christ. So what do we do? We have to hold loosely to the things of this world. And we have to set our minds on things above. Set our hearts on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, that's where we need to put our focus. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith for the joy set before him endured his cross despising the shame hold loosely focus on christ while we sojourn in this world there will be difficulty a song perhaps some of the older among us remember this albert brumley wrote this world is not my home I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Not defending the theology of that. I'm not sure if the angels do the beckoning. But set that aside. It's just the sentiment around it to say, I don't belong here ultimately. There will be difficulty. Now, I want you to consider doubt. Doubt. That's the next word that I want to look at as a heading here. Now, maybe you've heard about the, uh, the wife who complained that after two or three decades, her husband never had verbalized his love for her. But his answer to her about this didn't really comfort her when he said, look, I told you that I loved you when we got married. If anything changes, I'll let you know. Now, I think you'd agree that... She might have reason to doubt his love, not, not because she initially didn't believe it, but because she knows that his commitment is imperfect, right? And reinforcing it once in a while would probably be a good thing for their marriage. So let me just encourage you, husbands. <laughs> encourage your wives. Affirm your love. Well, with imperfect, imperfect commitments, time has this effect of eroding confidence, doesn't it? I say that because as flawed humans, our mistake oftentimes is to assume that God, not that we'd verbalize it this way, but that somehow God is imperfect in His promises. And because of that, time erodes our confidence. 
doesn't it? But I want to say this. Time eroding confidence in God's promises is nothing more or less than simple doubt. That's what it is. Now, God made a promise to Abram. Time obviously had eroded his confidence, and he doubted the word of the Lord. Now, really, could anything get in the way of God fulfilling his promise? Could anything? It's a rhetorical question. The answer should be no. Look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well for me, with me, because of you, and that my life may be spared, get this logic, for your sake. Huh. Now, certainly Abram's concern for his own safety was legitimate. He reasons. His wife is beautiful. And, and it's no mystery that kings, rulers of lands, who believe they have absolute authority, they take what and who they want. And you even, even a righteous king like King David, peering over his wall at, at the wife of Uriah, one of his generals, he says, I want her. Get her for me. Takes her, commits adultery, murders her husband. Even righteous king. Kings do what they want. So Abram's reasoning isn't outlandish. If Pharaoh knows Sarai is Abram's wife, he will kill Abram to take her. So, to protect himself, what does he do? He comes up with this ruse, and he gets Sarai to participate. She's to tell, tell this half-truth that she's Abram's sister. Now, we don't know where this idea comes from until Genesis 20, verse 12, because he does this thing again. We learn there that Sarah is, in fact, the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. I looked up, trying to figure out how the family tree worked out. I couldn't figure out anything. But we'll just take the word of God at its face value. But what's going on here? Abram doubted. And his reasoning became convoluted, right? He doubted God, and then his reasoning became convoluted. Now think about this. What good is God's promise of offspring if his wife is given over to another man? Right? And what kind of man gives up his wife in order to save his own life? You, you, you know, I mean... He takes her into his household. He makes her part of his harem. Now, again, thinking, would it not be better to be honorable and risk death and let the Lord take care of fulfilling his promise? Now, <laughs> I had these thoughts, and then I thought, okay, easy for me to say this, but I wonder, I wonder if I and perhaps some of us are not prone to similar doubts about God's promises. Have you ever doubted God's promises? Maybe instead of trusting God to work out the details, make a compromise with the world just to make it easier for ourselves. Standing up for what's righteous seems to be particularly difficult. You know what? Let's just go along. Just, yeah, just make sense in the moment. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I'm pretty sure I have. Well, time eroded Abram's confidence and he doubted. And again, we see the parallel between Abram and the Israelite tribes. 
The Israelites, they had been rescued from Egypt, and they had seen the Lord work mightily on their behalf. You know, you know what happened in the, in the Exodus. The water was turned to blood. These plagues, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock killed, boils, deadly and destructive hail, locusts, darkness, and then to cap it all off, the killing of every firstborn in every household that was not covered by the blood of the Lamb. What a spectacular show of God's power. And then, and then as they leave Egypt to see the Red Sea parted before their eyes so that they could pass through on dry land, and finally to watch that water return and drown Pharaoh and his entire army. And now the Israelites are in a wilderness. And because they did not immediately possess the land that was promised to them, time began to erode their confidence in the Lord. And they grumbled. And in spite of all that God had done to rescue them, they actually idealized their slavery experience back in Egypt. Numbers 11.5. This is what they complained. This is how they complained. Oh, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt. It cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. They were slaves. But the food was great. Not only that, but they impugned the very character of God, right? suggesting to Moses that, that God had done this, somehow intending evil and destruction for them. The people, it says in Numbers 21.5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness where there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food? Do you see where doubt leads? We doubt God, and we start to idealize the thing that we've been rescued from. We doubt God, and we start to somehow believe that He has got evil intended for us. See, doubt is simply a, a lack of faith in God's Word. It's that sinful seed that was planted in the mind of Eve by that, that serpent in the garden when he said to her, Did God actually say? The seed of doubt that led Abram to concoct a ruse. It's the same seed of doubt that the, clouded the minds of the Israelites to see Egypt as preferable after the rescue. And looking forward in the scriptures, it's that seed of doubt, that, that doubt that often overcame Jesus' disciples at times, even though they, they had this front row seat to the power of God on display. Example, when Jesus came to the disciples in their boat, it was stormy, and, and he was walking on the water. That beautiful moment. Peter calling out to Jesus, wanting, not sure of who he is perhaps, Peter wanting Jesus to prove himself by telling Peter, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus chose to grant Peter's request, and so he commanded him to come. And perhaps you know the story. After taking a few steps on the water, Peter begins to sink because he looked away from Jesus to see the effects of the wind. Jesus said, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? How many times has Jesus' rebuke applied to me? And perhaps it's applied to you. O oh, you of little faith. Has that same seed of doubt that we're tempted to give into and often do 
when we don't trust the word of God and we choose to live by our own wisdom. If you sat through the Sunday school class, Aaron beautifully explained all of that. Well, the remedy, the remedy to doubt is to seek wisdom from the Lord. Now, there's no indication in our text that Abram sought the Lord before he told Sarai to lie about being a sister. There's no indication. But here's the truth of it. Wisdom from above trumps human logic. God is logical, but sometimes human logic doesn't fully grasp the reason of God. God is not illogical, but oftentimes we just simply cannot see it. Because we're blinded by our own perceptions. We're blinded by sin. We're blinded by the influences around us. So we need wisdom from above. James says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And here's what the Scripture says. God, who gives generously to all without reproach, Asking God for wisdom, the Bible says this. If you ask humbly, say, God, show me what to do. The Bible says God gives generously without reproach. He doesn't sit there folding his arms going, yeah, I'm not so sure you deserve my wisdom. No, that's absurd. God gives wisdom without finding fault in us. Because it's the very expression of humility to say, God, you know, I don't. But let him ask in faith, it says in verse 6, James 1, without, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You don't want to be like that. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The remedy to doubt. The remedy is asking God, for wisdom. And I submit to you that Abram did not. Well, finally, we get to the deliverance. I was trying to think about this, but sometimes this stuff dominates the news. I watch a lot of news, read a lot of news. How many stories have we heard about someone who was advised against sailing because of perhaps the, the bad weather, but went anyway and then got into trouble, right? Or the adventurer who decides to climb a mountain and falls and is injured. Or innocently, the child who just simply wanders away from her family in the wilderness. What happens? Coast Guard, helicopters, massive search crews, right? It, it, it seems like every effort and cost is expended to rescue the one in danger without questioning the wisdom of what led that person into that peril. And I think, I think that's reflective of how God is with his own. God is faithful, even when we're not. And even though Abram was deceptive, he was prospered by Pharaoh. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, that is Sarai, they praised her to Pharaoh. Look at that woman. Look at Abram's sister. Isn't she beautiful? And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, of course, it's the very thing that Abram believed would happen. And, and in a sense, if we read this, it's like, oh, it took a positive turn. 
Now, I don't want to read too much between the lines, but I can't help but think that Abram would have been horrified, horrified to know that his wife was in the harem of a godless king. But, verse 16, and for her sake, that is Sarai's sake, he, that is Pharaoh, dwelt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. He was enriched by Pharaoh. Thanks for your sister. <laughs> now, unless we enter the story and try to, try to experience some of this, we, we might miss some of the, the stuff around it. We're told very matter-of-factly what unfolds here. But here's an important principle of biblical hermeneutics, which is to say interpretation of the Bible. It's to not confuse the things in the Bible that are descriptive with what is prescriptive. Here's what I mean. Just because Abram was materially rewarded by Pharaoh and then ultimately got his wife back does not make his actions to be deceptive, righteous, or wise. We need to get that. And this is often what happens when unbelievers quote the Bible and they say, see, they're missing it. And we ought not do that. What the Bible describes about someone or some situation is not necessarily what is prescribed or required of us for obedience. So just take that to heart when you're reading the scriptures. And I think that's obvious. You're thinking people. And I take it that even though it worked out for Abram, it was in spite of his actions not because of them. Abram was prospered in spite of his deception. Why? Because God, God is the one who had the higher purpose. God would ultimately fulfill his promise to Abram. And we look at what happens in the text. So no sooner had, had Pharaoh rewarded Abram, we're told that he was inflicted by the Lord and all his household. Now we're not told exactly how, but he maybe put two and two together but somehow he became aware of Abram's lie. Why did you tell me she's your sister? Verse 17, The Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now, we see no response from Abram. There's no word. I don't know if he said anything. It's not recorded. He's silent. I think he's clear. Yeah, I guess I did that. I was just serving myself. And he's already reasoned his mind why he would do it. Verse 19, told. Pharaoh says, now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Just get out of here. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. <laughs> Incredible. The Lord delivered Abram from the situation. Why? Because his own promise to him could not be thwarted, not even by Abram. Abram was promised offspring and was promised that they would possess the land of Canaan. So he could not, under any circumstances, remain in that situation in Egypt without Sarai at his side. And so the Lord's promise for blessing to Abram and the likewise cursing of his enemies was carried out right in the setting. Back in 12.3, I read this already, beginning of the chapter, the curse stated, him who dishonors you, that is Abram and his offspring, 
I will curse, says the Lord. Those who dishonor you, Abram, and your offspring, I'm going to curse. And so the Lord afflicted Pharaoh with plagues, ultimately Pharaoh sending him away with all the wealth that he had gained while in Egypt. Now again, we see the parallel with the Israelites. Again, the Israelites are about to cross the Jordan. They're hearing the story. They're going, ha, huh, this sounds kind of familiar. As a curse similarly fell upon the Egyptians when the Lord commanded Pharaoh, release the Hebrew slaves. And Pharaoh refused. He was compelled to release the slaves, right? We already talked about these, the plagues that fell upon them. And they ultimately released the Hebrew slaves. And if you read that, that section, the Hebrews plundered the Egyptians. They took their stuff and they left. Now, considering Abram's weakness in the midst of this trial, you might think that the Lord would just have left him in the mess that he made for himself, but that's not how God works. When he makes a promise, that promise cannot be thwarted. Those he has determined to save unto himself, he will save. And if you're in Christ today, it's because he determined to save you that's good news. God's promise to bring you to himself cannot be thwarted. Jesus said, when he was teaching in the wilderness, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Everyone that the Father has said, these are yours. Jesus said, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ this morning, you are secure in Him because of the promise of God. You will never be cast out. And listen, if you're here this morning or listening, watching online, if you want deliverance, the only way you're going to find that and what I mean by deliverance is rescue from the tyranny of the sin that dominates your life, from the trajectory to hell that you are on. If you want deliverance, turn to Christ in faith. Acknowledge who He is as the Son of God who came into the world. Acknowledge that He lived that sinless life. Trust that when he was nailed up to that Roman cross, he was put there to pay the full penalty of your sin. And believe, as the scripture says, that on the third day, he emerged from that tomb, proving his divinity and securing eternal life, forever life for all who put their faith in him. Find deliverance in Christ alone. And brothers and sisters, even when we stumble and bumble around, as we are, we tend to do, God is gracious and patient, isn't he? And when we experience difficulty in this life, remember that God is saving others too. You might be thinking, why is, why is this taking so long? Why, why have we not arrived at the kingdom of God yet? Why has Jesus not come back yet? 
And we all pray for that. I, I do anyway. Lord, come. Sometimes we feel like that. Ah, just, I'm done. Be nice if you came back, Jesus. Slow. Well, let me read from the scripture. Peter says this in his second letter. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should re reach repentance. That's God's heart. And because God was patient, he found you, and he showed you his son, and he said, there, there is where your sin is. Trust him. And we, like sheep, go astray. But we have the curse has laid on him, Christ himself, the iniquity of us all. And so experience difficulty. Well, be prone to doubt. We know that God will ultimately fulfill his promise. Paul says to Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. Now, here's the warning. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we deny him, it proves that we never really trusted him. But here's the hopeful part of this as well. If we're faithless, and oh, how often do we feel like we're faithful? Remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's our God. Abram was tested. The Lord delivered him. The Israelites often doubted, but the Lord delivered them and all who call upon the Lord in faith. Our deliverance is in the one offspring, the one promised to Abram, the one in whom all of the nations are blessed. And we are, but we must be patient and endure trials, holding on to Christ and not doubting. Wow. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, grateful that you speak. And uh, Lord, our prayer is simply that while we experience the difficulty that we were told we'd experience, like Abram, and when we find ourselves doubtful and even faithless, Lord, we're ultimately fulfill your promise and rescue us. Thank you for the promise of Christ's return. And to that day, when gloriously he will be revealed to all creation as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Until that day, Lord, keep us faithful as your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.